This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Really fun episode for you this week. We've got a new segment called Fact or Fiction with myself, my partner, Matt Gourlay, and special guest, Danan Hawes. Harpreet Sani is joining us as a special correspondent, along with Emma Rhodes, talking about parenting, lawyering, and COVID. But first, the second part of the two-part Eric Gattardi, What to Watch Out For from the Supreme Court of Canada in 2021. And I thought, Eric, we'd start with uh, the one that everyone's waiting for, JJ. Yeah, I think, I don't know, in terms of looking at the, the upcoming ca- calendar for 2021, this, this case seems to me to have um, one of the, you know, the bigger potentials for impact. And so this, this uh, appeal obviously deals with the constitutionality of um, you know, what many have called the, the Gomeshi provisions, uh, sections 278.92, uh, uh, through to point nine four, um, which came into force in December of 2018 as part of Bill C-51. And so, as we know, these sections requirement require the defense to tender uh, records that are in the possession of the accused, in which the complainant has a privacy interest, uh, any record that the, the complainant has a privacy interest in, uh, and the defense has to make an application for a ruling on their admissibility. Uh, and so the JJ case uh, was one coming out of BC. Uh, <clears throat> defense had brought a constitutional challenge to those provisions, saying they should be struck. Uh, and Justice uh, Jennifer Duncan upheld the constitutionality of the provision, except for uh, the notice period, which she found to violate Section 7. And so she had found that it was violative of Section 7 and not saved and, and effectively read down the notice period so that the defense application can be brought after the complainant has testified indirect. Um, the Crown unusually uh, applied under Section 40 of the Supreme Court Act to uh, apply directly to the Supreme Court of Canada, arguing that the ruling was strictly procedural. And if there was an acquittal in the case, uh, they weren't going to be able to appeal that ruling. Um, now, of course, there was uh, an acquittal in that case, and the, the, the jury and JJ acquitted uh, him of the sexual assault at trial. Uh, but the, the issue is going up, and the defense applied to um, cross-appeal uh, in the uh, Supreme Court of Canada. And so the defense is not going to be able to, or not be limited to, arguing about the notice provision, but is going to argue the constitutionality of the legislation uh, in its entirety. Uh, so that's set for hearing in May, and uh, I think it's it's one that uh, many are watching with great interest. Uh, you know, there are others across the country that have similar cases, and we're trying to get the issue up. Uh, and so there's lots of interest in this case, and it's the first time the court's going to deal with these uh, these provisions that came out of a, that high-profile case that... Uh, that you know something about, Danielle. Um, so, uh, you know, I think everyone's quite quite excited about it, at least on the defense side of things. Um, 
because you know if the court does overturn um, the provisions, I think there's there's many that will think that the you know the, the proper importance on the fair trial rights of the accused will have been vindicated. There's a concern that if the court does not uh, strike down these provisions, that um, you know we're going to be moving into an era where uh, the privacy interests of uh, crown witnesses will be either at par with or sometimes trump uh, the fair trial rights of persons that are accused of crimes. So I think you know people feel strongly about the issue on both sides, and uh, this is going to be a ruling that everyone's watching with great interest. I think too about the procedural implications. You know, at the moment, getting uh, a sex assault trial on the rails it is just such a massive undertaking. You know, you have a motion for directions to determine first whether the material in the defense brief uh, fits the definition of a record. You have to have that determined. And if it is a record, then you bring your constitutional challenge. Uh, and then if you've got a 276 issue in the mix, um, you know, you're looking at two, three, four pretrial motions before you uh, even have your client arraigned um, and, and so much time in between for the complainant to get counsel, instruct counsel. Um, it is it, it, it's just rendered these cases that would otherwise be one or two days into massive undertakings for the court. Um, and, you know, I would appreciate some, some guidance on that because uh, it's just, it's, it's so massively expensive to people who've retained counsel privately and to the, the system as a whole. Well, that, I mean, that's right. I mean, the other thing is, is that these cases are, are difficult in themselves, right? It's a difficult subject matter. It's difficult on all of the witnesses, all of the participants. And the more and more complicated the regime begin, you know, becomes, the more technical it becomes, it, it really becomes, a, you know, for those counsel that are in the, you know, the rarefied air of being able to pick and choose which cases they take on, you know, they almost, you know, they're almost becoming a subset of criminal defense work that requires a real specialization, or at least, or at least has the feel of it to those who haven't put the initial work into stay up to speed on the legislative changes. And so, you know, if you if you've got you know five cases to intake that week, and one of them is a is one of these types of cases, you know, are are you going to decide that that's the time or that's the case where you're going to learn all this new procedural framework that you're going to have to learn to do an effective job, uh, or do you you know take on the other four cases and and refer that one out to someone who's already familiar? So you know, again, you know, anything that makes the law more and more complicated, I think is uh, is you know the complications the aspect of the complication itself can become a bit of a bar to uh, to access to justice to, to people charged with these types of offenses. Do you have any predictions in, in terms of where the court's going to go with this? Oh well, I mean, <clears throat> I would be I would be surprised if they completely uphold every aspect of the of the changes. Um, you know. Justice Duncan, who was, she was one of the first ones to hear one of these challenges, and you know her ruling is fairly limited. Um, you know, Justice Actar out of Toronto in Ontario, 
um, much more recently uh, just handed down a decision where I think he struck all of the provisions or most of them, um, you know, and, and in a situation where, you know, kind of under probing from Justice Akhtar, uh, you know, the Crown was answering questions like, well, you know, what about a mortgage document that, that you know, the, the spouse had filled out that, you know, included some, some clear, um, you know, falsehoods in it, you know, and you wanted to cross on a, that mortgage document, does that get captured by these provisions? And the Crown's answer was, oh, yes, of course it does. And so, you know, the breadth of what's caught is is very wide. And I think a lot of, uh, I think a lot of judges can appreciate why that would be uh, quite problematic to uh, the defense in terms of disclosing, you know, their defense, the theme of the cross, you know, all sorts of areas where, you know, the purpose of the cross is to, you know, really test the, the truth of these allegations that are often hard to get to the bottom, bottom of. And, uh, you know, if you do have some of this outside objective evidence to use in the cross to test the veracity of the allegations, um, why would we kind of uh, undermine the impact of that if, if, if in fact cross-examination is the, the greatest engine for truth in our adversarial system? And I don't know, you know, I don't know that it's in the interest of the of um, the complainants and and you know, if the victim rights advocates uh, took a hard look at it and and had some kind of real data on it, I don't know that they would find that um, victims want an overly complicated process. And I think you know, Justice Akhtar's decision is really interesting. It's clearly coming from the perspective of someone who who spent a long time in the trial courts and knows what it means to have to have a reverse disclosure meeting with a witness, um, which I'm sure he had done uh, over and over again in, in his capacity as a crown. And so, you know, what it, what it means is when the defense forks over that disclosure is the crown has to sit down and essentially take a second statement from the complainant. And now all of a sudden you've got a complainant who's been interviewed twice uh, on overlapping subject matter. And that, you know, that may be to the benefit of the defense, frankly, um, and and may not work um, to the favor of, of the credibility and reliability of the witness. So I don't know that these provisions, I mean, I, I certainly know what they were aimed at. I know very well what they were aimed at, but I, I don't know that they achieve what they set out to do. No, I agree with that because, you know, um, you know, what, 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 what that kind of preparation can sometimes lead to, right? Is, or, you know, if we're not talking about, you know, emails that we're talking about the sexual interaction or like really tied to the nature of the allegations, but, you know, there's an example about a fraudulent mortgage application or something. Like if showing it to the complaint ahead of time, <clears throat> you know, they may be coming into court and giving a very, uh, you know, rehearsed answer that might come across as, you know, overly prepared or concocted um, whereas if they'd just been faced with it, you know, for the first time in cross, their answer may have the ring of truth to it, if they have an explanation, right? So we all know that over preparation can sometimes run, you know, counterintuitive to how someone can present in their demeanor and in the quality of their evidence and how it sounds to the human ear as it comes out. And so, you know, it's, it's a complicated area. And I, I just, you know, I, I think I've always thought, you know, the, the benefits should go to the accused, right? If it, it doesn't have to be uh, a completely even playing field uh, between 
the two witnesses because they're it's not an even playing yeah. game. The entire the system's tilted and and uh, someone's liberty is at stake. So I I mean I appreciate all the other challenges there are getting these cases to to court in the first place. But once they're in the court, I don't think the system needs to um, uh, kind of bend over backwards to put you know put 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 these. Uh, individuals on an even base, uh, kind of an even playing field, if you want to think of it like that, because it's not an even playing field when you're in the courtroom. Well, we're we're in agreement, Eric, on that. Um, we were going to talk about Sharma, uh, perhaps at length, uh, but there was a development, a legislative development this week that um, has kind of changed the the backdrop on this case. Um, uh, Sharma's on the on the schedule of Supreme Court, um, and it it turns on a mandatory minimum issue in sentencing. But this week, um, Bill C twenty two was introduced, um, which should have the effect of of uh, rendering Sharma less important or or not. Eric, what's your take? Well, yeah, I mean Sharma Sharma definitely would have been. Um, you know, one of the most important cases I think the court was going to hear this year. And, and I think in some ways it still is. But, um, you know, Ms. Sharma was pled guilty to importing cocaine, sentenced to 17 uh, months of incarceration, um, came from, you know, a First Nations background. Um, and at the sentencing, Ms. Sharma argued that, uh, you know, she'd been denied um, access to the conditional sentence by provision or by, uh, you know, dint of these provisions that limit the application of conditional sentences to uh, certain types of offenses that carry a certain uh, punishment and argued that that was contrary to section 15 uh, and section seven, although ultimately the section seven challenge was, uh, was withdrawn. And so on appeal, you know, the, the court struck down uh, the provisions in a split decision um, uh, as violating uh, Section 15. Uh, and uh, Madam Justice Feldman, who was in the majority, uh, held that the provisions uh, did violate uh, 7 and 15 of the Charter as being arbitrary and overbroad. Um, and the, there was a very interesting kind of split in the court in terms of Section uh, 15. Um, and, you know, this kind of concern voiced by, I think, Justice Miller, um, that, you know, you, you can't kind of start immunizing ordinary legislative legislation or legislative changes from, from future amendment um, on the basis that they, you know, the, the the subsequent change, you know, to make it more restrictive is would be contrary to the charter. You'd kind of you kind of get into the situation where you could you could only add benefits and you could never make uh, changes down the road um, that would uh, seek to limit some of those some of those rights. And so it was going to it's going to uh, Ottawa going to be argued, uh, you know, a large number of interveners at the Court of Appeal, and again, a large, even a larger number of interveners, I think, proposed for the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, and so, you know, the, the new changes uh, affect many mandatory minimums in C-22, 
And importantly, also remove most, if not all of the restrictions on conditional sentences uh, and their application to a, a whole host of offenses. And so, you know, going forward, I think, you know, offenders in the shoes of Ms. Sharma won't have to deal with the restrictions that were, were are being litigated in her case. So um, is it still important? I think it is because I think uh, I think it's it, 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 the legal debates in and around Section 15 and its application to uh, mandatory minimums or the limitation of, of rights that have been bestowed on accused persons and what to do when those benefits and rights are are removed in the future, uh, especially as those benefits uh, apply uh, to you know racialized minorities, people in, in kind of historically disadvantaged groups, um, many of which that we know are overrepresented in our uh, prison system, uh, is a very is a very interesting uh, application of Section 15, and um, you know Sharma has already led to a challenge in, in BC and, and other places, a case called Chen. Um, challenging some of the same restrictions on the basis of uh, seven and fifteen, and uh, you know, I think some of these arguments can can be made in relation to some of the um, the, the limitations on uh, the availability of sentences in firearms cases as well. So, you know, I think there's, you know, these issues that were used very cleverly by uh, you know Nader Hassan and and uh, and others counsel for Sharma. Um, can you know have some application in relation to other other legislation that isn't touched by the changes in Bill C-22. So I still think the ruling is going to be important and ha will have a broader application in future cases for a creative council to take and apply the principles that the court decides in, in the context of other cases. You know, it's like when you're reading it, you, you, it seems kind of obvious and you wonder why why it hadn't um, kind of blossomed in the case law before now, but yeah, like over-incarceration is a section 15 problem. And to the extent that there are provisions that block access to community sentences, um, they kind of obviously violate 15. And uh, I do think Natter was um, genius or whoever on the team uh, kind of figured out um, that resort should be made to 15, but I, I it, it kind of, uh, begs the question, you know, where where else can we find relief uh, under 15? In terms of other offenses, other legislation, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and maybe, well, you know, a, a, or other groups mm -hmm. that are over-incarcerated. Right. Well, look, I mean, I think if you have a client that's that has um, uh, kind of access to 15 through, you know, the entree of one of these disadvantaged groups, then I think, you know, you would be well served to think about trying to deploy section 15. It's, it's not a, it's not an oft used section in the criminal context. Um, I think, you know, counsel and judges, uh, you know, it would probably be good to kind of go to school on 15 a bit and, and bone up uh, on it. And so, you know, Charmin, some of these related cases that, that have the criminal courts starting to grapple a bit more with Section 15, I think are, are recommended reading so that you can start to evaluate that as a potential for, you know, you and your client if you get someone in that, that might be able to access um, Section 15. 
Um, you know, again, it's kind of like, uh, it's one of the more complicated, unwieldy charter sections in my view. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know, Council for Sharma, I think, um, did a great job of, as you say, how did this not occur to someone before this? Like it was just, it's just such a simple argument, right? The change was made to uh, deal with serious things that, you know, this, you know, this wasn't uh, uh, this type of person in this kind of scenario, a very kind of victimized uh, career type person is not really the serious um, harm that we were looking to protect ourselves from in the community. And so, um, you know, what are we, what are we doing here? So it was, it was, it, it, there was some, there was brilliance in its uh, simplicity, bringing simplicity to what is often viewed as a complex argument. So as I say, uh, you know, I think you can apply, you can apply it to some of these other scenarios where just the mention of firearms, uh, you know, I think from some people's point of view automatically makes the case, Yeah. Uh, you know, a nine out of 10 on the seriousness scale, but when you really look at the facts of a particular case, it may actually only be a two, right? Yeah. It's a, yeah. So, yeah. And, and we're going to see that, I, uh, you know, we had a full uh, five member panel, of the court of appeal a couple of weeks ago here, the Morris case in Ontario dealing with a, a judgment below from justice Nakatsuru um, and, you know, I, I know that a lot of Ontario advocates were watching that play out online. And, and so we'll see what the Ontario Court of Appeal um, says about enhanced uh, 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 pre-sentence reports that, that talk about um, uh, anti-Black racism in the context of sentencing. What is a reasonable expectation of privacy in the digital age? Search and Seizure, Iman's latest addition to the award-winning criminal law series, explores key concerns around digital search and seizure powers, including 487 search warrants, internet search history, warrantless searches, and exclusion of evidence. With practice tips from both a Crown and defense perspective, this 800-page comprehensive guide analyzes viewpoints of right holders, police officers, and judges reviewing police conduct. With well-respected authors Nader Hassan, Mabel Lai, David Sherbrooker, and Randy Schwartz, this practical handbook is bound to become a must-have resource for defense, crown, and judiciary. To get your copy today, visit emon.ca LLP-SS and enter promo code LAWYERSLOUNGE for 10% off. Again, that's emon.ca slash LLP dash SS promo code Lawyers Lounge for 10% off your copy of Search and Seizure. Not unlike Howard Stern, I'm calling upon my producer to participate in this segment, a segment called Fact or Fiction. Uh, Danan Haas has agreed to come on and uh, read out facts from a case and quiz Matt Gourley and I on whether uh, the case is a case of real facts or fiction. <laughs> there you go. And this is competitive. And what are the stakes again? So, uh, yeah, I think that the, uh, the winner cumulatively will be the recipient of a free lunch at the expense of the loser. Is that is that satisfactory, Daniel? That works for me, so long as it's a liquid lunch. All right, a three <laughs> martini lunch. <laughs> All right then, so here we go. Um, so fact scenario one, 
And do we have to ring in? Um, no, that's okay. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll just randomly choose someone to go first. Okay. Hmm. In the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, a state's list, a woman leaves her considerable fortune to her pet ferret to be held in trust by her ex-lover, cutting out her husband and two kids entirely. I know that that one's true because that was uh, that was my grandmother and uh, it caused a lot <laughs> of discord in the family. I'm sorry, Matt, this is so embarrassing. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised you would have raised that one first, Dana. Um, ferrets carry a lot of disease, do they not? Uh, they can if they're not well tended. I just don't know if it's the right kind of pet for uh, children or or even a nice a nice wealthy lady. Just um, I just well, don't want to in inspire any of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your what's your guess? I think it's true. It's cr it's just crazy enough to be true. Okay. Man. All right. Uh, I'm gonna say it is false. Is it's it was actually. Uh, a mink. I made it up. There you go. <laughs> That's a sick and twisted mind you have there, dude. <laughs> no, you're just realizing that now. Okay. All right, one nothing. One nothing. All right. Next. A defendant in a criminal fraud case makes the argument that her low IQ would have prevented her from committing the crime in question. She offered evidence of poor spelling and the inability to perform long division. Well, I, I, I'm gonna say, I mean, that's not, that's not too far off some defenses we've, we've run, Danielle. I, if you yeah. get desperate, you, you bring what you can. Yeah, uh, no, it, it, I'm not it, sure that defeats the, not sure if it defeats the mens rea of fraud, but uh, I'm gonna say that's true. Uh, what concerns me is the description of this lady's intellect uh, or gentleman's intellect aligns completely with my own. <laughs> Are you admitting an inability to do long division? I am. Uh, and as you know, Matt, you know very well, I can't spell to save my life. So, um, Well, you might have a defense available to you. I should just go on a crime spree already. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I agree with Matt. It's true. Made that one up too. Oh. Wow. You know, you maybe should consider a career in defense. We should play Balderdash together. <laughs> okay, number three. When a woman with a 2.7 GPA was unable to find a suitable job following graduation from college, she sued the college, claiming that the college's career services department did not provide sufficient help with her job search and gave preferential treatment to students with excellent grades. She sought to regain tuition fees plus an extra amount for the stress caused during her three month job search. Hmm. That, uh, that sounds true to me. I mean, I don't know, Matt, when you were pursuing a uh, English literature PhD, did you ever think about suing uh, NYU? Well, I, I mean, certainly um, the better grades didn't 
put you in any better position for <laughs> employment, probably the contrary. Um, so my, my relatively good grades propelled me to graduate school and thenceforth to a complete career dead end. So <laughs> I, probably, I probably should have exercised that option. Um, I'm, gonna say, I'm gonna say that's true. Yeah, I think it's true. It is true, well done, both get a point. Oh, good. Okay, so what, can I get a tally, please? Again, math, math is poor. <laughs> My math is poor. Uh, two to one for Matt. Okay. All right, number four. After a woman was severely injured by a pit bull, she sues the dog's guardian, not for money, but for an order to allow her to adopt the dog aptly named Monster. Well, you know, it's a little known fact that, that Matt has a, a, a very healthy uh, dog practice. So just for anyone who needs some, some assistance in, in terms of the regulatory, I don't even know what it's called, the Pet Act. Dog Owners, <laughs> dog owners Liability Act or DOLA. Yeah. Uh, we, it's actually the only uh, statute in Ontario that still allows for capital punishment. And uh, we've had a couple death penalty cases. Generally, we've been successful, but uh, I won't say that our, our record is totally is totally clear. But yeah, it's uh, it it can be a pretty uh, pretty tough area of practice, and there are some uh, there's some real downsides. So I I I don't know. I I think that you could have asked for an apology. She could have asked. For damages, I'm not. I, I don't see any any basis for adoption on these facts. I mean, I think it would be fairly traumatic. You know, what's the name of the syndrome where you start to empathize with your kidnapper? Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, if you you want to like adopt the dog that injured you, just I don't know. I I would hope that her counsel would strongly advise her against that that um, that request for relief. I, this, this sounds made up to me, false. Yeah, it's made up. <laughs> it wasn't that great. That one wasn't my best work. Well, you've got dog, dog on the brain, Dana. I do, that's true. For our listener, Dana is a, a new-ish dog owner, right? Yes, but uh, very much an animal lover across the board. Okay, question five. Newfoundland case of a restaurateur who sues a bar for claiming to have the best fish and chips in Canada. Plaintiff attempted to prove that his fish and chips were objectively superior given the tried and true family recipe, which had garnered numerous awards over several decades. And sorry, what kind of an action was this? Um, it doesn't say. Like he was suing the other restaurant for for claiming that they had the world's best fish and so chips. I, I, right. So I assume it's um, a fraud claim. Oh. You know, our uh, my colleague and um, and Matt's partner uh, uh, once uh, cried in a Newfoundland uh, restaurant because the food took too long to arrive. 
It's a famous story. It was fish, it was fish and chips as well, I believe. Yeah. But um, was it good when it finally arrived, Matt? It was excellent. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I'm. I, I don't. I don't think that people from Newfoundland are are that egotistical and and competitive to make that kind of a claim. I'm going to say that that one's false. Danielle, I think it's true. I think it's true. You know, people get prideful. It's false. <laughs> Made it up again. Damn it! Damn it! It's a pretty fun game. <laughs> Okay, so four to two for Matt. God. <laughs> Next one. Uh, claim dismissed by the Quebec Superior Court where a man tried to claim ownership over the entire solar system. The man claimed that the only suitable respondent, God, being incorpor incorporal, was not invitable as a respondent. And that was supposed to have entitled him to what he was claiming? I guess, right. Uh, I've heard of the free man on the land. We've dealt with a lot of these characters. Yeah. yeah. They usually they usually restrict their claims uh, to the terrestrial world. <laughs> I'm not... But it doesn't sound like an implausible uh, extension of the of the ethos. Yeah, there's a philosophical consistency there. Yeah, I'm going to say that one is true. Okay, I I feel like I just need to, um, I need to take a gamble here to try to advance my my cause, and so I'm going to say that it's it's false. Uh, I respect the gamble, but it just backfired. Oh, no! Yeah. Five to two. You're on fire, man. <laughs> Langevin, uh, 2012 Quebec uh, Superior Court. All right. All right. Next one. Uh, a man was told to pull over by a cop, drove forward, and stopped with his wheel on the cop's foot. When the officer shouted to move the vehicle off his foot, the man said, F you, you can wait, but eventually moved it off. The man argued that a wheel on a foot could not be an assault, and that, uh, and that act came to an end without any mens rea. That's, that illustrates a fundamental principle of criminal law that the, uh, the mens rea and the actus reus must overlap in time. And the, the gentleman's argument there is that the act of driving the car onto the foot was not intentional uh, and no mens rea was present at that point. And by the time it got on the foot and uh, the mens rea became uh, present, there was no more actus reus because he didn't do anything. So I think it's an ingenious theory and I believe it's a, it's a true case. It is a true case, Dan. You're right. It's a true case. And did he win? That I don't know. But I remember that from law school. I do remember that case. 
uh, Fagan versus Commissioner of Metropolitan Police. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, next up. Uh, judge's decision in a, a 2010 case of the Court of Queen's Bench for Saskatchewan describes the plaintiff as, quote, utterly uncredible, demonstrating obvious gaps in moral character and a very suspect looking mustache. True or false? I, I, the what do you think, Danielle? Well, I, I was kind of with the trial judge until until she got to the stash, which I just think, I don't think that's fair. And you're you're assuming it's a she because of the mustache animosity? Yeah, I think that the you know I'm not to speak for my entire uh, gender, but you know there is a, a natural opposition to the to the mustache, at least uh, on its own, you know, in combination with a beard and sideburns, there's an argument to be made, as you gentlemen uh, all know. Yeah, I'm thinking this one might have been a, uh, a real uh, twirled up handlebar that uh, can <laughs> signify, I think, on any reasonable, uh, on any reasonable view, a certain degree of moral turpitude and uh, dishonesty. <laughs> Well, unless so, it's a hipster. Well, I rest my case. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that's true, and it was the characterization was upheld on appeal. But I, I'm gonna say it was false, unless the the witness was twirling the mustache. I don't think there's any basis to comment on it uh, in a in a in reasons for judgment. Danielle is correct. It was false. Yes. <laughs> Lowly catching up here. Five three. Five three. Uh, all right. Next up. A man claims that various defendants were conspiring against him because he was a Martian. Applying arguments of statutory interpretation, the court struck the plaintiff's claims, uh, since only a person under the rules of court could bring actions, and since the plaintiff was a Martian, he had no standing before the court. Well, I, I think that's that's wrong as a matter of law. It, it, uh, it comes down to jurisdiction, not standing. Danielle? Yeah, it is a jurisdictional issue. Um, which is, you know, you, you're right to identify that problem in the in the drafting of this. I guess uh, we're, it doesn't mean it's not a not a real case. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna say it's it's tendentious legal reasoning uh, because Martians can be people too. But I'm gonna say it's a real case. I think it's fake. I think you're fake. It's a real case. Oh. Jolly versus Pelche, 1999, uh, Ontario. I feel bad for the Martian. <laughs> All right, two left. Oh, I think you've already won this, Matt. So the rest is just for... Uh, well, unless we do a double or nothing. That's right. true. Should we raise the stakes, the value of the remaining? Yes. Okay. Okay, so these are all worth double, the final two. Great. Okay. A couple argued over the amount of spousal support to be paid to the to a farmer's former wife. 
the fact that the farmer's ex-wife was mauled by a cow was not even the most ridiculous part of the case. This couple required 60 court dates in Toronto before being able to settle their dispute. 100% true. Now, there's a couple of problems there. It's impossible to be mauled by a cow. Uh, and there aren't any cows in Toronto in the first place. I, that's It's clearly false. You made it up. I wish I made it up, but it's true. It's oh, true. my God. Someone was really yeah. mauled by a cow in Toronto. I mean, they could have had multiple properties, right? Fancy well, people often do. And fancy people can afford multiple appearances in family court, you know. Fancy people who can't tell a bear from a cow. I don't know. I You don't think a cow could could maul someone they have teeth don't they and and horns and they're big yeah and I mean, you're thinking of a bull yeah, that's you people have never been on a farm <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess <laughs> <laughs> well they're big i've got that part <laughs> <laughs> okay so what where does that put me in the standings uh so that that helped it's now uh seven six matt Ooh, baby yeah, and if you want to find out more about that case, it's Slack versus Slack. Okay, final question. This is pretty much for all the marbles. Toronto court, a Toronto court acquits a man on uh, an over 80 impaired driving charge based on a unique watermelon defense. The court believed the accused in this claim, uh, or sorry, the court believed the accused in his claim that his friends soaked watermelon in vodka as a practical joke, and that his alcohol consumption was involuntary. Mm. So he ate the watermelon on purpose, but he didn't realize it was spiked. Is that the idea? You got it. Okay. I hate watermelon. It's the only food that I dislike. Impossible. I just, I, I just hate it. Even and when I, it's soaked in vodka? Especially when it's soaked in vodka. And I don't like watermelon gum or lip gloss. I just hate watermelon flavor. Well, that's fine. But what do you think? Um, I, okay, the, my analysis is this. I think the man was acquitted, but, but to the extent that there is such a thing, it was a wrongful acquittal because you would taste the vodka. No, and that's, I, I don't believe it. That's the whole point. And that's why it's such a hilarious prank, especially when the friend uh, ushered the, the victim to the car and, and saw him off behind the wheel. Uh, <laughs> it's real. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a proper acquittal. It, it, I'm going to, I'm just to make it interesting. I'm going to say it's fake, Dana. It was real. The water. Oh, <laughs> all right. Matt wins. Congratulations. In our first fact or fiction, you're the big winner. All right. Well, I, uh, I have a lot of people to thank. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Crown prosecutor, Jill Whitkin and defense lawyer, Daniel Brown offer an extensive examination of the legal processes involved in litigating sexual offenses in the much-awaited Prosecuting and Defending Sexual Offense Cases, second edition. 
This edition contains new chapters on historical sexual offenses and cross-examination on private records. The text reflects the extensive changes to the criminal code brought upon by bills C-51 and C-75 pertaining to third-party records, other sexual history, and consent. This bestseller is designed to help practitioners focus on the procedural, evidentiary, and strategic elements specific to sexual offense cases. These elements include search issues, children's evidence, cross-examination on private records, and sentencing. Revised forward by Marie Hennen, contributions from Cecilia Hageman, Megan Cunningham, Don Way, Adam Weisberg, and Colleen McEwen. To learn more and order your copy today, visit emon.ca slash LLP SO2. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off. Just visit emond.ca slash LLP SO2 and enter code Lawyers Lounge at checkout. Next, we have Harpreet and Emma Rhodes talking about single parenting and the pandemic. I'm Emma Rhodes. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I uh, focus my practice on youth, both uh, dealing in YCJA proceedings and in child protection. Um, and that's what I do. So I, I deal with kids. See, now, you should know that you are underselling yourself because you don't just deal with kids. You're kind of a big deal. You. Well, can you tell everyone that? Because I don't think that, uh, I think you're the only one that believes that. I believe that. And, and, and in furtherance of that, we have evidence of this because you have a book, it's got your name on it. And it's not as if you even hand wrote it. You wrote no. stuff in the book. I wrote some of it. Um, so I, I did co-author a book with Brock Jones, who everybody knows as a uh, uh, youth superstar, and Mary Birdzell, who everyone should know as a youth um, superstar. So these are two people that whenever I have questions, I uh, bother them, and then I get the answer, and then I sound smart. But I never know the answer myself. <laughs> so they're, uh, yeah, they're really great, um, and they are the co-authors of, of uh, our book. And um, I, uh, it still kind of blows me away that I'm in the same, I'm on the same cover as those two. With good reason. So this is why one of the many reasons I asked you to uh, speak with me today, because you clearly know about the law and you know about kids and we've all been living with COVID for 17 years now, approximately. At least. At least. It's, it's funny. It's been like 17 years, but it's also been an hour. Like I find that the last year has gone incredibly slowly and incredibly fast at the same time. Um, it's kind of blown up physics or time or that whole continuum because it seems like one really long day, but it's been going on for 50 years. Like it's very strange. And I, I don't know if that's because there's no markers and every day is the same and it's Groundhog Day. It's obviously very long because life is horrible right now, but um, yeah, it's very strange. It's the longest, been the longest time in, in the same day. Oh, it's very strange. But in any event. It's still March. Is it? Because yesterday I, I, I had to look it up. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if it was, I thought it was February. I got very confused. Like I really don't, yeah, I, I don't know what's going on. COVID started in March. It's been a year and it's still March. It's still, it's still last March. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, you also happen to have a child. 
You have a, a child? How many kids you got? I have one wonderful, amazing child who is nine years old. That's a lie. The wonderful part, because no nine-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> she may listen to this. She's, um, it's, uh, she, it's interesting because she, you know, as all kids are, they are the best of times and the worst of times. Um, I'm a single parent and I live by myself. So she has been my only contact with people for the last year. Um, and, uh, yeah, so she has saved me in many ways and she's also killed me at the same time. Um, because a homeschooling certainly didn't bring out my best self. Um, but it's been like the only, like, she's the person I talk to. She's the person I can cuddle with and have that human interaction with. But at the same time, I, uh, she's, she's brought out my worst self this last year. <laughs> and then we had this joke during homeschooling that, you know, cause she would, uh, you know, be difficult as children are. And I had a meter stick, uh, and I would, you know, say, you know, if you don't do it, I'm going to hit you with this meter stick. And we'd both start laughing because it was a joke. But it was only a bit of a joke. <laughs> but they don't let me get out the meter stick and then we both laugh. But uh, yeah, but we had it, you know, it was hard. It was very hard. Yeah, no, uh, and it continues to be hard. We'll always remember this moment, though, as the moment when you confess to uttering a threat. <laughs> Other, it's several threats, several yeah. threats. That's good. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, but it's been the same with her, right? Because it, they say kids are resilient, which is, you know, bull kids are not resilient they uh just uh, change who they become as adults and uh, so she will be a messed up adult in the same way that we are all messed up adults and she'll have issues because of the pandemic that she'll bring into relationships and mess up her relationships in the same way that we mess up our relationships um so it has been interesting because you know you i i think she is fine and then um i will see her do something i will oh right she's not fine and so it's a very, it's been a very interesting year. It, it'll be very interesting uh, for psychiatrists in about 15 years who are dealing with young adults uh, to see the issues that have come up as a result of this. So that's a study I look forward to reading, uh, hopefully one day. Reading? You're going to be a part of that study. We're all, well, yeah, yeah, we're all part of it. But children specifically, like how, yeah. How, you know, how are they going? How is this changing their brain? And how because their brains are still evolving until they're 25. So how is this actually going to affect the development of their brain? And how is this going to um, mess mess them up in the ways that we've been messed up? Yeah. So. Great. We're all going to learn the hard way. Yes. <laughs> Your nine year old is uh, homeschooling. Is she uh, is she online? Oh, no, she's so she's at home or sorry, she's at school. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's the lockdowns and then, you know, the sniffle test. Like, if you know, she's been home, I think uh, I've taken her for three COVID tests because uh, she's had symptoms that in any other world, I'd say, get up, you're going to school. But now I can't do that. So, mm -hmm. you know, a headache or um, a runny nose, a stomach, all those things that kids have constantly because they're petri dishes and they're disgusting now means that she stays home and I don't work. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's been, so she's been home, I would say over, uh, not including the lockdown over the equivalent of like three weeks, just for general, you know, being a kid crap, but now it means she stays home. Yeah. I've decided that if they shut down the schools again, regardless, <laughs> every day 
I'm dropping those kids off in the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> Whether they go into school or not is no longer an issue for me, but they're going to that. Yeah. Place. Or just like, I don't know if we can tie them up in the backyard. Like, I don't know what we do. Um, and it was interesting, right? Because in, you're in Peel, right? And yeah. Peel, we know, is having a really hard time with the pandemic. And, um, you know, that'll be another uh, reckoning, I think, for this province. The fact that um, so much that made our province work during the lockdown was very much on the backs of Brampton. Because Brampton is the you know, transport center where everything comes out of. And I don't think that Ontario has really recognized the, that Brampton has taken it. It's like such a huge toll. I don't know where I went with this. Where was I going? See, this is another thing of the pandemic. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Uh, I start talking and then I forget. You were preaching Brampton, so I was letting you go. Yeah, I was letting you, but yeah, no, we, we owe Brampton. But uh, yeah, so I think another lockdown is coming. Um, and uh Oh yeah, this is this is why I was talking about Brampton. Um, so yeah, you you can understand this because Brampton has really suffered as a result of this pandemic. So when everything was locked down and kids were at home, it was a relief in some extent. Like it was very, and I was relieved. My anxiety on one column was may, way lower because I didn't have to. My kid was safe. Mm -hmm. but then my, the anxiety in the other column goes up because I can't work and I'm around my kid all the time. So it just seems like we're just, anytime we reduce an anxiety column, we're just putting it into another anxiety column and it goes up. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, you know, with sending kids to school, it, it was, you know, a choice between harm versus harm, like harm of putting them in harm's way because of possible COVID exposure or putting them in harm's way because they're going to become reckless. So it's just like this constant, like that's what this last year has been. It's just like you can decrease anxiety out of column A, but it goes up in column B. And it's just this constant thing. So if school shuts down again, it'll be great because that anxiety will go down, but then all the other ones will go up and I'll have to bring out the meter stick again, right? So it's like, it just, it just never ends. Um, yeah, it's a, yeah, there's no winning. There's been no winning. Now, uh, I understand that through all this, in addition to uh, raising your lovely child, uh, you're also practicing in the, uh, in the criminal courts. How's that working out for us? It's tough, right? Um, everybody knows it's tough. Everybody knows that it's been hard running a practice. Uh, you know, in, out of, uh, you can see I'm in my basement, out of my basement. Um, and what made this job kind of fun is if you have a really crappy day you see people in the hallways afterwards and you can talk about it and we're not allowed to do that any, anymore so the little breaks that were kind of incorporated into our day are not there anymore and now for parents as you know our day is either work or and trying to make up that billable hour or caregiving um and there really isn't anything in between like it's either one or the other and then our caregiving has gone up which means our billable hours goes down so then we have when we have a break in the caregiving then we have to try and make up those billable hours it's just been like this constant uh race um yeah so it's been hard like I, you know it's funny when you contacted me you said oh we can talk about parenting and funny stuff but i feel like the, the joke is kind of over at this point um and uh it's been really hard and it's been hard as a you know to try and uh, explain to people who don't have children how hard it is to be a lawyer with children. Yeah. Have you found that people have been accommodating? 
Not always. No. Yeah. Without naming names, or by with naming names, I don't care. Who has treated you like garbage, and how can we get our revenge on them? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm still dealing with that. Uh, I, I'm going to put together a 12-point plan, and then I'll distribute it. But not. Not. Some some people have been very accommodating and very understanding, and others have not been. And um, it's just that's that's just I think the way life is, right? Yeah. Give me an example. What 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 have, what jerk moves have people been pulling on you? Um, things like uh, oh, um, you know, having to uh explain um that or having to justify why i can't do certain appearances in person um or just automatically changing times on me so i'll have you know oh we were gonna have this court appearance at 9 30 okay council i want you to appear now at nine it's like whoa no no like this is a very tightly controlled ship that i'm running things can't be moved like that yeah it's just like nine is like crazy hour. Like you can't just, you know, it's so it's just that, um, you know, uh, that's been difficult where it's just like, no, 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 we're doing this now. It's like, I, I don't have childcare then. So th- this is going to be interesting. Yeah. Um, other, other times it's, uh, I, I had one court appearance in particular um, where it was by Zoom and I was, you know, in my basement doing court and this was during the school shutdown. Mm-hmm. And I heard like crashing upstairs. I was like, I'm going to go upstairs and my kid will have lit the house on fire. So I said, excuse me, your honor, I hear some crashing. And so I'm just going to need a brief recess. And the judge was like, take as much time as you need. And so I went upstairs and it was gym hour. So she was doing jumping jacks. So that's all that was happening. Totally controlled. But from where I was, and certainly on the record, it sounded like, um, you know, police had to be called. Yeah. Uh, so, so there was that, but but the judge was, you know, we we're dealing with very very serious matter. The judge was extremely accommodating and said, "Take as much time as you need, you know, no worries, don't worry." And that that's always refreshing. And that's the move. I have yeah. uh, I have a superior court matter where on the Sunday night before our continuing matter, I get a disclosure dump, a big old case <laughs> book. Now, even in the before times. That's not a nice thing to do. It's not, not nice. Right? But you throw that in on top of COVID, on top of kids are home, on top of it's over 300 pages of case law. And I'm thinking, what, what are you doing? Like, how much yeah. do you accommodate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that we have to kind of look at. Um, what, I hope it's something that we look at when this is over because um you know we talk about you know retention and retention of 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 lawyers retention of racialized groups and you know all all we have to be very careful about this and there's a we we have to accommodate people who work in multi-generational families and dealing with children and uh, otherwise we're going to lose we're going to lose diversity in the profession and that is um that is to our detriment. So I hope it is something that we, when this is over, we can say, okay, this is not fair to do this on a Sunday night. Um, you know, because it's just, we can't talk about wellness and retention and, and be doing this. Like we just can't, um, 
there needs to be a balance. Yeah. One thing that I'm starting to do now, and I haven't played before, and I want to know your thoughts, is I'm now less and less hesitant. And I'll, I'm, I'll say more infrequently that instead of just talking about late disclosure, et cetera, et cetera, I'll say very clearly in court, on the record, things like, I have childcare issues. You cannot disclose this to me the night before when I'm feeding my children and expect me to be prepared today. Uh, that is great. That's not something I did before. Is that something you yeah. did before? No, and I'm actually, this has been the year where I've started to say no. Before I was, you know, anybody needed my time, I say yes. And so I was always very, you know, if a law student wanted to talk to me, 100%. You know, if uh, somebody wanted me to volunteer on something, 100%. And now I have to start saying no. And I now have an email I send out. I say, I am a single parent of an elementary school child, um, so uh, a, a, um, a small business owner, which means that out of all the groups hardest hit in the pandemic, I'm in three of those boxes. Yeah. So I can no longer give you my time. Um, and I hope that when this is the pandemic is over that I can revisit my decision, but I can't right now. And so, and that's been very liberating because it is, it's one of those, you know, I, I want to help people that are upcoming in the profession, but that means that that's an hour billable time that I lose an hour less of helping my kid with their homework mm -hmm. and 24 hours in a day. And the pandemic has taken so many hours away from parents. Yeah. hundred um, percent. Um, there's a little mini segment within a segment I've been working on, and this is a total okay. surprise for you. You have no idea. Uh -oh. what's coming. I call this parenting or the law. Are you ready? Yes. Oh no. This is substantive and important. Okay. And, uh, your failure to uh, answer this question will reflect poorly upon you. No pressure. Um, no pressure. No pressure. A person has a reasonable expectation of privacy over their bedroom, even if they don't own it. Is that parent for no. the law? No, that's just a fact. They do not. They do not, right? They do not. Does your child have a reasonable expectation of privacy over her room? No, but no. in my defense, <laughs> she does not, I do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Like at all. A closed bathroom door means nothing to her. Like I have no reasonable expectation. So why should she have a reasonable expectation of privacy? So no. 100%. You do not need a warrant to go into that no. room and search, right? No. 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 And she and she doesn't get a warrant to do that for me. So, no. no. And you are uh, in a position of authority, obviously. Absolutely. 100%. No, absolutely. Yeah. So your position is that an authority figure does not need a warrant to search a person's room over which they have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Is that what you're telling us? That's what I'm telling you. If, you, if it's a person's under 18, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. All right. Well, remember you said that next time you're in court <laughs> and uh, you're challenging a, 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 a unreasonable and warrantless search over a bedroom or a hotel room or something. Emma Rhodes says no expectation of privacy. I have said this many times. Children have rights. Children, ha <laughs> children are individual rights holders. They are entitled to their own rights, with the exception of my child. That's a 
That's a reasonable exception, except for your child. Except for I, my child. Your child has no rights. Zero, and I tell her that all the time. You're a good defense lawyer. Big thank you to Eric Tardy, Matt Gourlay, Damon Hawes, Harpreet Sani, and Emma Rhodes. See you next time in the lounge. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. Directed and published by Dana Hawes and marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like the Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Iman exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. <laughs>